The Jerusalem Channel is made with the support of you, our viewers. Thank you for watching. People everywhere are alarmed at the state of the world, but God is certainly never taken by surprise. Even as the world is becoming more burdensome during the time Jesus referred to as the beginning of sorrows, the sure word to every believer is, fear not. All things are subject to God's sovereignty. To put it in simple terms, God's got everything in control. Shalom, I'm Christine Dark. The Bible gives us a truthful assessment of our place on the planet. To summarize, we presently live in a fallen world. And even Satan, the devil, is the temporary god of this world until Jesus returns. My question is, does evil reign supreme in this world presently? The simple answer is no. Ultimately, God is still the sovereign in this world. A sovereign is a ruler, a king, a lord. And scripture often refers to God as the sovereign who rules over this world, as well as the entire universe. God's most proper name in Hebrew is the four-letter tetragrammaton, yud Hey vav Hey, meaning I am who I am, as revealed in Exodus 3.14. But for fear of mispronouncing God's name in the English Bibles, the tetragrammaton is often replaced with the word Lord in capital letters. In the Bible, Lord with capital letters is found over 7,000 times as a name of God and specifically as a name of Jesus, the Messiah. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, Americans don't have the same familiarity with the concept of sovereignty as do people from Great Britain or the Commonwealth. Modern Americans have never lived under a sovereign ruler, and although Britain's government is called a constitutional monarchy, Nevertheless, the British have a better concept of sovereignty as the monarchs in their past have exercised supreme power and authority. The Jewish people have not had an earthly king since the Babylonians captured Jerusalem in 587 BC and King Zedekiah was led into exile. God Almighty is a sovereign who exercises complete control whether we can see it or not. And according to Daniel 2.21, he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. In the kingdom of God, nobody is an elected official because God does reign supreme. After an unprecedented historic reign of 70 years of Queen Elizabeth II in London, we have witnessed her son, King Charles III, ascend the British throne with all the ongoing pomp that accompanies the coronation of a king. But soon in Jerusalem, the king of kings will be enthroned as sovereign of the universe, and it will be a million times more glorious than the beautiful trappings of British monarchy. 
I want us to understand the sovereignty of God in history. God is still working out his purposes. Like any story, history has a beginning, a middle, and an ending. The cross of Jesus was in the middle as the hinge of history. The end of the story is yet to be demonstrated with his second coming and thousand-year rule upon earth. Therefore, the complete demonstration of the Lord's Messiahship awaits events which are in the future and have not yet occurred. It will take the second coming of Jesus to give the final verification to his messianic claim. The Jews thought in Jesus' day that when God was revealed to the world, everybody would know it. And so at Jesus' trial, when the high priest Caiaphas demanded, I adjure you, putting Jesus under oath, tell us whether you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus answered with the Hebrew scriptures. He said, henceforth you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. When he returns, his claim to deity will have a cataclysmic verification to what short-sighted men have failed to comprehend. In the millennium after the second coming of Jesus, the nation of Israel and the Jews will be the center of interest once again. They will enjoy their restored kingdom with King Messiah ruling them and the world from Jerusalem. So the subject of the sovereignty of God is infinitely fascinating. There was a godly woman who was very influential in my young life. And when I asked her later on what was her favorite Bible doctrine, she answered, the sovereignty of God. Yes, our God is sovereign in history, in nations, but also in families of believers. This is because of his nature as a covenant keeper. He's the one who watches over the lives of believers. Sometimes a person is blessed because God has sovereignly taken into account the prayers and lives of their parents or their grandparents or other relatives. As I look back over the four decades of my ministry, I've had many godly ambitions and desires, and I've knocked on many doors. But the Lord has been sovereign in my life over which doors I should go through. And I'm so grateful for his sovereign leadership. Some things that I have wanted might not have been his best for me. God has overruled many avenues, and I have to say, his guidance has been perfect. He has been sovereign in my upbringing, in my schooling, in his choice of my life partner, my wonderful husband, Peter. And God has been sovereign in the places where we've lived, where he has sent us to preach the gospel. He's been sovereign in the lives of our sons and in the persons whom our sons have married. He has chosen our ministry partners and associates and on and on. He's also the sovereign God of surprises, but he always faithfully comes through for us. He wants to be our dwelling place. As Acts 17:28 puts it, the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Now, if you were to look up the word sovereign in the dictionary, you'll find definitions and phrases such as ruler, supreme in power and authority. There's absolutely nothing that happens in the universe outside of God's influence and authority. In fact, sovereignty is an attribute of God based upon his supreme authority in 
all things are under his control as creator, as owner, and possessor of heaven and earth. The Protestant stream definition of sovereignty is described in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which states that God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordained whatever comes to pass. The Catholic position is similar, maintaining God's absolute lordship over history and the world. Easton's Bible Dictionary defines God's sovereignty as his absolute right to do all things according to his own good pleasure. There's no limit to the scope of his knowledge and sovereignty, for God knows everything completely before it ever happens. Nothing is too difficult for him, and he orchestrates and determines everything that's going to happen in your life, in my life, in Israel in the UK, in America, and throughout the world. He does not override free choice, but we can trust him and not be overly concerned about the future. A beautiful verse is found in Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen, which declares, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. He has power and authority over nature, over rulers, over history, over angels and demons. As the book of Job demonstrates, Satan himself has to gain God's permission before he can act. So in these often dark and testing times, how well it is to remember that God is on the throne, his throne cannot be shaken, and he will not fail in doing all he has spoken and promised in this book of books, the Bible. It's wonderful, relaxing, and quite frankly, liberating to realize that God has access to the hearts of all persons, and he is able to soften or harden hearts according to his sovereign purposes. Think, for example, of the profane Bible character Esau, who swore vengeance upon his brother Jacob. Yet, when Esau met Jacob again, instead of killing him, Esau fell on Jacob's neck and kissed him. Ahab, the weak and wicked king of Israel, who was married to the most notorious woman, Jezebel, was highly enraged against the prophet Elijah. Yet when they met, instead of killing the prophet, Ahab meekly obeyed Elijah's orders to gather all the prophets together at Mount Carmel for a showdown between God and the prophets of Baal. Esther was the hidden Jewish queen in the book of Esther in the Hebrew scriptures, and she illegally entered the presence chamber of the king to make a petition to save the lives of her people. For her chutzpah, she went into the king's presence expecting to perish. But instead, we're told, she obtained favor in the king's sight, and he held out his golden scepter to Esther. The Hebrew boy Daniel was a Jewish captive in a foreign court in Babylon. The king appointed a daily provision of meat and drink for Daniel and his friends, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's unkosher provisions. And even though defying the king brought potential fearful consequences, we read in the book of Daniel how instead God brought Daniel and his godly friends into favor. 
This is because the scriptures teach in Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. When the Lord Jesus himself returns to earth at his second coming, he will rule the world by divine right to sovereignty. Isaiah 34.8 speaks prophetically of our time, how the Lord is angry with the nations concerning the controversy over Zion. That's the hostility of nations against Zion, and it's due to the Lord's own cause in restoring his ancient Jewish people. The current controversy is over land rights, so-called annexation of biblical territories that God gave by covenant and by deed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. The patriarch Jacob was renamed by God Israel, meaning a prevailing prince with God. And it's to Israel's descendants that God gave the Holy Land. Sovereignty over land is not the same thing as annexation. Sovereignty means supreme power or authority by a state, whereas annexation means the act of adding new territory into the domain of a city, a country, or a state. So to speak of Israel annexing its own territory would be to suggest that Israel is seizing land that historically belongs to others in order to enlarge the state of Israel. But instead, the biblical heartlands of Judea and Samaria are Israel's lawful territories, historically belonging to the land of Israel, the land of the Bible. The difference between sovereignty and annexation is not just a question of semantics, but of two quite different actions. Poorly educated journalists who insist on using the word annexation make Israel an occupier of someone else's land acquired through aggression. Such a narrative suggests to the world that Israel is a thief, which is not the case, and that God, by extension, is a thief, since God says the land is actually his and he's given it to Israel. It's true that in its modern history, Israel kept the official status of the biblical heartland somewhat vague because Israelis were naively hoping to negotiate some of their priceless land in exchange for the elusive peace. But Bible-believing Israelis have always acknowledged that these territories belong to nobody but the land of Israel itself. So the term annexation is a misnomer because it commonly denotes the forcible taking of somebody else's territory. Israel already held a legitimate historic right and claim to Judea and Samaria even before Israel came into possession of these areas in self-defense in the Six-Day War of 1967. Surely, according to the Bible, Israel has a right to its biblical land. So sovereignty implies ownership, whereas annexation implies thievery. As intercessors and watchmen on the walls, we have always to be biblically correct. You see, this subject of sovereignty is vitally important for Israel for a very practical reason. The defensive wall of the land of Israel made possible by strategic depth. The way we read Bible prophecy, sovereignty has to be applied over the biblical heartland of Judea, Samaria, and the Jordan Valley because Israel must be living in relative security 
and possessing strategic depth for defense. And that's the implication of Ezekiel 38 and verse 11. That verse says that in the last days, Israel will be living securely when the land is invaded by enemy nations that will try to take a spoil. But the invaders will be soundly and supernaturally defeated by God's intervention. In that future war, God vows to defeat Israel's enemies. And from that day forward, a great national revival will begin with Israel returning to God the Father and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That Ezekiel war that's prophesied in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 will likely result in the building of a third temple. After God intervenes supernaturally and defeats the confederation of invaders, including nations to the north of Israel and modern-day Iran, Ezekiel 39.22 prophesies that from that day forward, the house of Israel will know that the Lord is their God. And therefore, God says, now I am going to restore Jacob, that's the Jewish people, from their captivity. And he says, I will have compassion on the whole house of Israel. And he vows that he will be jealous for his holy name. He's not going to vouch so much for their righteousness, but for the righteousness of his holy name. When he causes them to dwell securely in their land with no one to frighten them. God says, when I bring them back from the peoples and gather them out of the lands of their enemies, I am going to show my holiness in them in the sight of many nations. And then they will know that I am the Lord their God. When I have regathered them to, the Bible says, their own land after a long exile among the nations. And then God says, I will no longer hide my face from them. For he says, I'm going to pour out my spirit on the house of Israel. And what a powerful chapter in world history that will be when God intervenes to save the nation of Israel and when he pours out his spirit again on the house of Israel. In fact, the prophet Zechariah, chapter 12, verse 10, prophesies, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplications, meaning they're going to plead for mercy so that when they, when the Israelis look on me, God says, whom they have pierced, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over firstborn. It's going to happen, people, because this word of God cannot be broken and every word of our supreme sovereign will come to pass. Meanwhile, conservative evangelicals who know Bible prophecy clearly see Jewish settlement in Judea and Samaria as a fulfillment of many Bible prophecies. For us, it's not rocket science to believe in the authority of the sovereignty of God. For example, Jeremiah 33 says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will bring back my people Israel and Judah back from captivity and restore them to the land I gave their ancestors to possess, says the Lord. Also in Jeremiah 33, 7, it's written, I will bring Judah and Israel back from captivity and will rebuild them as they were before. Many Bible-believing Christians clearly see that the prophets promised the children of Israel would return to the mountains of Israel and rebuild Jewish cities. 
It's a fact of history as the Jewish people's claim to the historic land of Israel was actually recognized by the international community at the San Remo Conference in 1920 and also in the League of Nations mandate decision in 1922. Those official recognitions were not the granting of a new right to the land, but they were recognition of the Jewish people's historic, pre-existing claim as an indigenous people seeking to reconstitute their national sovereignty in their ancestral homeland. Nothing since has abrogated or avoided Israel's right to sovereignty over the biblical land of Israel, including those areas now commonly referred to as the West Bank. Remember, the New Testament calls the Holy Land Judea, Samaria, and the land of Israel, not Palestine. The Bible does not use secular political terms such as Palestine and the West Bank, names which were imposed upon the land of Israel by enemies and politicians. There's been some disagreement as to when Israeli sovereignty over the Holy Land should be exercised, however. Some say applying sovereignty must happen only when the Messiah returns, but others disagree. One thing we can say for sure without any speculation, the God of Israel will be sovereign in the timing of Israeli sovereignty. Israel must recover all of her territory sooner rather than later, according to Bible prophecy, while extending justice to Arabs who want to cooperate and enjoy the benefits of living under the protection of Israeli sovereignty. And many Arabs do want to do just that, especially Christian Arabs who look around and see how Christians have been killed and persecuted in neighboring Muslim lands. Since the Abraham Accords, it's fascinating that increasingly Arab nations surrounding Israel are also saying that the Jewish state must be accepted and cooperated with as a fact of the neighborhood. But not all Christians are able to see and grasp the prophetic moment because many are just imbibing of the news media and erroneous so-called replacement theology. Some may even call it meddling when the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster sent a joint statement to the Israeli ambassador and the British Prime Minister expressing their opposition to any move by the government of Israel to, as they put it, annex so-called West Bank territory. They use the word annex, but sovereignty, we must remind the churchmen, is the biblical issue. And as Bible believers, we must view all of this controversy over Zion as part of our ongoing prayers for the peace of Jerusalem, as Psalm 122.6 commands us to pray. First of all, we know that ultimately only the return of the Prince of Peace, Jesus the Messiah, will establish true, lasting peace. Tragically, Scripture warns that the Antichrist will deceptively engineer a peace treaty, but it will be false, deceptive, and only a temporary covenant with death that will be annulled. In Daniel 9.27, the prophet Daniel warned all of this in advance. Secondly, I think we can safely say that sovereignty over territory ultimately belongs to the sovereignty of God. He will decide all of these issues. He will determine the timing and every detail. The good news today is that the Bible promises that Israel and every believer will be given a new heart and a new spirit. 
This is what the Bible means to be born again. You see, God promised in Ezekiel 36 to give Israel a new heart and a new spirit. And that's why in the New Testament in John chapter 3, Jesus said to the religious leader of his day named Nicodemus, who came to visit Jesus by night, What? You are the teacher in Israel and you don't know the scriptures that a person must be born again? You see, when we return to God and put our trust in the merits of the Savior for salvation, we receive the free gift of eternal life, and then we're born again by the Spirit of the living God. This means that we will have new thoughts, a new heart, new ambitions, new aspirations. We will be transformed daily by the indwelling, guiding, and teaching of the Holy Spirit. In the ancient Middle East, People were shown hospitality with foot washings because people's feet and sandals were caked with mud and dirt. A servant washed the feet of visitors. So Jesus, as the servant king, stooped down and washed the feet of his disciples at his last Seder, his last supper. And I want you to be assured that the Bible teaches that Jesus is able even now to wash all sinners clean. He comes to us, as it were, with basin, water, and towel, but actually he cleanses us with his supernatural blood, which was collected at the cross and presented to God by Jesus in heaven after his resurrection. So he's able to wash the dirtiest part of our lives and he will wash your heart if you will allow him and give him access to it. But we can't be cleansed unless we admit we need a bath, that we need to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. I like the way J.B. Phillips translated Hebrews 4.15. For we have no superhuman high priest to whom our weaknesses are unintelligible. He, Jesus himself, has shared fully in all our experience of temptation, except that he never sinned. So this means that he understands our weaknesses because he became fully human. Yet, he was also fully God. The Lord knows our heartaches, our pains, our disappointments, our sufferings, our frustrations. And he is faithfully ever-present with us when we give our lives to him, to his service. His timing, though we often question it, is always right. And at this moment, as I speak, the door of salvation is open. And there's still room for you to humble yourself at the foot of the cross. I invite you to invite the Savior to guide you through these troublesome times. Then the joy of the Lord will be our strength and we will never have to worry about doom and gloom. Hallelujah. Well, this is a lot of history to squeeze into a half hour and I'm sure you might have comments and questions. So let's share together on social media. And of course, our website, exploits.tv, continually reports on Bible prophecy and end-time events, especially as they relate to the church and to Israel. We invite you to sign up for our free electronic magazine at our website, exploits.tv, and at our Jerusalem Channel YouTube website, and at our Jerusalem Channel app, we have uploaded a library of videos available to you 24-7. Daniel 11.32 declares that the people who know their God will be strong, not weak, 
and we're going to carry out exploits, meaning let's accomplish the works of the Lord in the remaining time that we have left before the Lord's imminent return. Today, I want to leave you with the words of Jesus. My peace I give unto you. Our faith in him will bring us into collision with the world and its vanities. But he says, be at peace. He has overcome the world and is returning soon. So don't forget, contact me on social media. And until next time, I'll always be contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm Christine Darg. Shalom and Maranatha.